Now, The Interpreter Show, with discussion, debate, and the latest information on all kinds of religious issues and topics. Oh. Here we go. Now we're, we are we're, going out. Over we are going there. out now. This is just the, the bugs. Yes, this is the Interpreter Radio Show. In studio, Terry Hutchison and I'm Martin Tanner. We are broadcasting from a new location in Linden, Utah, which we're excited about. The Interpreter Show is brought to you by the Interpreter Foundation, whose mission it is to support the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints through scholarship by encouraging personal study and faith. It provides accurate information to help people do that by providing scholarship on a wide variety of subjects, which you can find at interpreterfoundation.org. And it also responds to misunderstandings and criticisms of the church. And although it does all those things to support the church, it is not owned, controlled by, or affiliated with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And so all our material tonight and everything else the Interpreter Foundation happens to do is... It's the fault of Dan Peterson, actually. Ours alone. That's right. That's exactly... Just, just read his blog sometimes and you'll see. He gets blamed for everything that we say and do. So, That's Dan, right. you know, I remember one time we were joking about it on the air with John Gee and Kevin Christensen, my usual co-hosts, on the second Sunday. And uh, Dan texted in something, and it was pretty funny. John just started laughing because <laughs> Dan said, bow before me yeah, <laughs> in his text. That's, but anyway, that's too funny. Yeah. Seriously, though, the Interpreter Foundation is a 501c3 corporation. Yep. So all of your donations to the, to the Interpreter Foundation are tax deductible. And we're all volunteers. I think there's a couple of uh, technicians who get paid a little bit. But for the most part, all of us, whether it's the hosts, whether it's those who uh, write the articles, edit the articles, do the blind peer reviews on the articles, which is a fascinating process, Martin, uh, a few about it. Four or five weeks ago, we had an article on astrophysics, I think mm-hmm. it was, or astronomy. And uh, I could, when I saw it, I remember reading, first of all, this is a fascinating thing because not everything from Interpreter is intended to appeal to everybody, but there's such a broad base of information that you can get. It, you know, people, people just really would do to, well to just dive into the website, find what interests you and what excites you. Yeah. But I still am stunned how they found peer reviewers for that article because <laughs> it was so much technical stuff about yeah. astronomy and uh, all of those kinds of things. It was just yeah. just amazing. But uh, the Interpreter Foundation has also sponsored movies. We did the uh, movie Witnesses as well as the docudrama. And every Saturday night, they post another little uh, snippet from the docudrama and, and some other information that's been gathered uh, information on Book of Mormon witnesses, not just the three witnesses, not just the eight witnesses, but others. Uh, they're getting ready to do another another film on the uh, succession of Brigham Young in the 12 to Joseph Smith when he was killed. And so it is just an amazing thing that's grown every Friday at your email. All you do have to do is subscribe and it doesn't cost anything. And an email will be sent directly to you with the latest journal submission. For example, two weeks ago, Norrell Reynolds had another 
fascinating article about the backstory of the brass plates. And then this past week, Warren Ashton talked about some uh, some archaeological discoveries and research in Oman. And that's something – and I know I'm not saying that right. Oman. Oman. But that's okay. <laughs> I'll let you correct me, Martin. That's okay. But, I, I remember know. when – when Warren Aston came out with the very first negatives of, of what what was believed to be where Nephi's ship launched from, and now there's a competing site. But anyway, I digress. Yeah. Go ahead. I mean, you know, once again, it yeah. just it, it, every week there's some, at least one, and sometimes more, and it's been going now for over ten years. Yeah. We just had our tenth birthday celebration in September, uh, and uh, my wife and I love going to those. They're yeah. great. So. Once again, your donations are important, and they're well used. And if you want to see where they're going, on the Interpreter Foundation website, there is a section where they reveal the finances. Yep. Fully so all those, people, all those people who say that you know one individual in particular is jetting around the world on the Interpreter Foundation dime, uh, wrong. Wrong, wrong. <laughs> one last point before we jump into our show. This particular edition of Interpreter Radio is sponsored by LDSAgents.com, a network of over 3,000 friendly, top-quality real estate agents serving Latter-day Saints nationwide and in Canada for more than 20 years. Try LDSAgents.com to buy or sell a house. You will be very pleasantly surprised if you do. Oh, I also need to announce that next Friday night, this coming Friday night and Saturday, will be the sixth Interpreter Matt, Matthew B. Brown Memorial Conference. I've had the opportunity to attend a couple of those live, even though, you know, it's a little ways for me to come from St. George sometimes. But uh, Friday and Saturday, November 4th and 5th, sponsored by the Interpreter Foundation, as well as the Brigham Young University College of Humanities and Brigham Young University Religious Education. Uh, Friday nights will be live-streamed at no cost. And I believe that the keynote speaker is Warren, uh, excuse me, Wilford Griggs, who's oh, going to he, talk about something that I'm very anxious to, to, to hear about, and that is uh, early Christianity in the temple, which... Martin, you and I will probably get into a little later, since that's yeah. several chapters of the book we're going to be talking about tonight. But also, uh, there will be several others. Margaret Barker is presenting, as well as Samuel Zinner. Both of them are uh, scholars who are non-LDS. Uh, Margaret is probably well known to most of our listeners. And Samuel uh, has a commentary on the book of First Enoch that was published by Interpreter Foundation. And the conference will be live, so you can live stream it. So go to the website and get the links. Or if you if you are interested in being and attending in person on the Saturday session, which will be the only one in person, you can go to a meeting house, an LDS meeting house in Orem, Utah, at 2168 South 140 West. But there's a map, and that address is also on the website. So I, I can't recommend those highly enough. Eventually, the papers are collected and bound together, uh, and Interpreter publishes those. You can find those in the books on the website. Uh, along with the one that's recently come out about the dictionaries of proper names and foreign names in the Book of Mormon, the etymology of it. 
Uh, it's a word John uses. John Gee uses as onomas- onomasticon, <laughs> and uh, as well as Matt Bowen. Yes, and Matt <laughs> Bowen. So, those of you who are, there are a couple of our other radio hosts here. So, there's just so many materials and things that you can learn from and benefit from your scripture study. And so, before we dove in tonight, Martin, I, I wanted to take a minute and let people know that, of course. Next year's Come Follow Me is going to be New Testament, and we at Interpreter Radio will be doing some of that, but we're not going to devote probably the whole hour of it in, as we have in the past. We've, we've got some changes that will be upcoming and will be announced soon. But I like to let my listeners know on my radio program in St. George, where I'm on every day, that, uh, hey, New Testament is coming up. There are some fascinating resources that you might want to acquire. And some of them might be expensive. Some of them are harder. So one of them I wanted to mention was um, something called the Comparative Handbook to the Gospel of Mark. Now, this is a publication from Brill, which is a European publisher, probably the most... Probably the most prestigious religious publisher in the world. Yes, and many people listening to this and in the little LDS circles don't know too much about it out of scholarly circles. But Brill is sort of like Oxford and Cambridge. um, Only plus. Of publishers, right. Yeah, when it comes to religious documents, they they are about top of the line. I I found it fascinating when we were – uh, a few weeks ago, John and Kevin and I were talking about the dictionary that has just come out from Interpreter about the foreign names I just mentioned. John Tvednes had published two articles that were published by Brill about the use of Hebrew names and Hebraism, Hebraisms in the Book of Mormon. And Brill just, just put it in. So they, they took it seriously enough. They took the scholarship seriously enough to include it in some of their publications. So it, it's certainly something that is uh, is very well noted. But this is kind of interesting. It's uh, edited by Bruce Chilton, Daryl Bach, Daniel Gertner, Jacob Neusner, Lawrence Schiffman, and Daniel Oden. came out in 2009. Now, I had a little email communication with Daniel Gertner hmm, several years after that on, on another matter from my book show, and I asked him when the next one was coming, and he said it had been delayed because Jacob Neusner, unfortunately, passed away mm. while they were preparing it. But Matthew and Luke came out last year. And so you can go to the Brill website, you can go to Amazon, you can try and find them. I will tell you, they're not cheap. Um, you know, you, you're... You're going to have to save your money, but this is fascinating because it takes the Gospels, it gives you a new translation, and then it compares them with Pseudepigrapha, the Qumran scrolls, as well as rabbinic literature of the time. So, for example, in Mark, where you're right at the first, where you're talking about um, John the Baptist, um, they quote the community rule from the Dead Sea Scrolls, they quote Josephus, they quote uh, some of the rabbinic literature at the time, the Mishnah, and and it gives you a sense a little bit of what's going on in, behind the scenes in the scriptures and to supplement it. And uh, I've just found that it's so fascinating with the commentary that they've got and and everything. It just really adds to my understanding of the New Testament. Now, if you don't want to go quite that expensive. Those, those are, you know, they're, they're a little bit technical. Another one that's very ex- an excellent companion, if you will, is the um, Jewish annotated New Testament. 
In other words, this is a volume that's come out from Oxford, and it's in the second edition right now. And it is a version of the New Revised Standard, excuse me, the New Revised Standard Version translation of the New Testament. However, all of the annotations, the footnotes, the commentary, and the essays are written by Jewish scholars, no Christians. And it helps add a flavor of how people of the Jewish faith and how scholars who are Jewish of the faith at that time understand and apply what's going on in the New Testament with regard to Jesus and and what he says. It's just, you know, and in fact, it was so effective that there were um, protests against it when it was first published. And uh, I would, you know, I I remember the editors is, uh, one of them is Brettler, and I think the other one is Amy Jill Levine. But uh, it's just a, uh, you know, they talked about some of the things that they went through when they published the first edition and how they were attacked um, by some Christians and by some by some Jews because of what they had written there. And it's just, uh, you know, a, a very interesting and, and it's a new way of adding to your understanding in the New Testament. So those are just some of the uh, resources that are available, of course, if you can find it. Um, Jesus and the World of the New Testament that came out from Deseret Book about mm, 10, 15 years ago. Hard to find, kind of out of print, but I think there's an electronic version now. I think it might even be available on Kindle, so I recommend you look for that by uh, Hossiful and uh, I think Hossiful and Seeley did the Old Testament one, but I can't remember who did the New Testament one with him, so you'll have to bear with me. But just look it up. Jesus and the world, Jesus Christ and the world of the New Testament. Yeah. Excellent companions to your studies of the New Testament. And even though Halloween is tomorrow, you can't start thinking about Christmas too early for some of these things. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's, that's right. Um, you know, one of, one of my favorites that's uh, a little bit easier for people who don't want to take quite as deep of a dive in, into Mark is William Barclay's New Testament series, which I think is just absolutely superb. William Barclay was a UK scholar and, and he just does a great job. And he's unlike many and, and this is kind of a tragedy, if, you know, if you go to some of the world's best theological seminaries, half to two-thirds of the scholars are kind of atheists or agnostics. And William Barclay was one of those scholars who was also a faithful, devoted Christian and follower of Jesus, which I always quite admired. He was a cool guy. Anyway, so I tossed that. Um, you know, I, I had the opportunity to talk to uh, one of Bruce McConkie's sons about his New Testament commentary and the Mortal Messiah, which came out in the late seventies, been around 80s. for a while, yeah. And uh, I said, "Why is he just? Why, why didn't he update it? I mean, because most of the scholars he relied on were Edersheim, uh, Farrer, yep. uh, people from the late eighteen hundreds." And he said, "Well, he said my dad said that at the time he wrote it, most scholars were non-believers. Yes, that is no longer the case." I mean, uh, as I I've the surveyed has, the literature, I think the pendulum, the pendulum has swung the other way. Swinging I think the, back. Yeah, yeah, I think the majority now are believers of some kind or another, and, and that has been so rewarding for me. You know, I've really been emphasizing this more in the last, say, dozen years, mm-hmm. in large part because of the example of Jeff Bradshaw. I ran across his work about a dozen years ago uh, for the first time, talked about it on my radio program, um, 
he was very grateful for some of the kind of things I said about him. But essentially, I said, this is a book, speaking of his in God's image and likeness, I said, this is a book that I wish I'd written. I mean, sometimes you look at a book and you say, I wish I'd written that, like Harry Potter, because you'd be rich, you know, or something <laughs> like that. But sometimes a book comes along that you agree with so much that you wish you had written it. And so that's kind of how we got started. But since then, you know, I've been collecting and gathering materials for projects of my own and taking my scripture research a lot more seriously. Between that and between, you know, Kevin Christensen's work on Margaret Barker that I first ran across about 20 years ago, um, and then looking at what she wrote, it just introduced me to a completely new way of looking at the scriptures. I would also tell you, and this is it, at press right now is the next volume of the BYU New Testament Commentary. And people who've listened to me on this program, as well as my program in St. George, know I'm a big fan of that, ser- of that, that series. The sixth volume is the Epistle to the Ephesians. It's put out by uh, Kent Brown, and it'll run you almost 700 pages. And the great thing about this, and I, I was just, you know, noticing that Desert Book is putting out a new, uh, a, kind of a new emphasis on these, so you should be able to find all of them in your local Deseret Book. If you want the hardbacks, of course, you can get electronic versions. And for these books, which are, you know, hundreds of pages each, it's only $35, $40 at the most. And that is an amazing price because generally when you find a commentary with this level of scholarship, you're going to pay around $100 or so for this size of a volume. And so look for Kent Brown's Ephesians along with uh, the last one to come out was Hebrews, and that's by uh, Richard Draper and Michael Rhodes who also did the first Corinthians one and who also did the book of revelations. And then for the two gospels, Kent Brown did the testimony of Luke and then Julie Smith's according to Mark, which, you know, we had Julie on our program about four years ago when she came out with that one. And, uh, it's great. I'm in fact, I'm still reading it. I I was reading it today. I, uh, I really enjoy that series. It's nice to see world-class scholarship from, Brigham Young University professors. That's a great thing. Yeah. So is. should we jump into your book? I guess we could. You, you keep you keep <laughs> bringing up keep, new things, new things, new putting things. it off. Yeah. yeah, but, yeah. But, but I'm I'm excited to to hear you talk a little bit about this, Terry. And for I can you know brag you up a little bit here the way you wouldn't brag up yourself. But we're here during our first hour tonight to talk about uh, a, a new. Booklet, short book, publication, however you want to describe this, The Temple Pathway to Heaven by two authors, Grant Gifford and, da, and da, me, da, da, Terry, Terry Hutchinson. Hutchinson. That's right. <laughs> and and this is re- really neat. How, how did you and your co-author, Grant Gifford, decide to write this book? How did this come well, about? Well, this, this came about several years ago. My Grant is my father-in-law. He's my wife's father. And uh, he retired. He finally quit going to the office. He just turned 90 last month. And uh, it's one of the reasons why we we're, we self-published. We're going through Amazon. We, we did have some interest from a, a couple of publishers, and we were honestly turned down by some. But um, this is uh, something that, that at his age we wanted to get it out. So eight years ago, he quit going to the office every day. I mean, he's just full of energy and very, you know, very smart. He's got a 
he's got a doctorate in, in uh, education and uh, did some he, – he was an educator for a while and then he was a home builder for a long time and has done pretty well but finally retired, went on a mission and then came back and decided he wanted to write a book about temples and ancient temples. So for a couple of years he worked on that on his own and uh, then he invited me to come and look at his at his work and I did and I felt that it was a really good start. He had a really good theme but – his uh, his uh, the material of the research that w- was in the book really could be supplemented, and so I started saying, "Well, you know, I've been working on some ideas of my own, and by this time, as I mentioned earlier, I had been inspired by Jeff Bradshaw and was, you know, looking at different projects to write about and things like that, and so I would help him." and say, hey, you, sh- you could take a look at this, or you could take a look at that. And before you knew it, it, it was kind of a joint project. It was project. a collaboration. It was a collaboration. Cool. Yeah, he invited cool. me to come on, and I was glad to do it. And so, really, we've been working on it when, whenever. And, and as people know, I'm, I go between St. George and, and up north, and he lives in Alpine, where my wife and I are from. And... Uh, so she's up there and I'm down there and it's so complicated. What was, so what was sort of the, the purpose or, or the, well, over, the overarching for him, theme the, the, for the this? The overarching theme for him was to talk about how important temples are. And, um, you know, it has a lot of personal application for him. He's got um, three children who've died and uh, his first wife had died. And so the temple and the sealing power and the covenants there have a lot of personal meaning for him. And he wanted to share it. He wanted to share... Um, the work of Hugh Nibley and how he understood, you know, how temples were always a part of God's plan for his children. And so, you know, we, we started out and, and wrote uh, essentially about how Joseph had restored, re- received the revelations about it from Moroni. I mean, it was so important that it came in the mission of Moroni and then uh, kind of went from there. And then he we he wanted to talk about the 40 day literature and uh, you know he he got some information from Jack Welch and a project that's at BYU for sure. that and for people and, who may not know the 40 day literature is the teachings of Jesus right before he finally yeah after he was heaven. resurrected and before he was taken up into heaven that's called the 40 day literature or the purported 40 day literature yeah. and you know there's it's we we have two chapters on that in the book actually Very so cool. this is a book that's uh it's over 300 pages and um we've got some great illustrations that we were able to acquire uh, some pictures of temper, temples mm-hmm. from uh Robert Boyd photography we got oh, the rights for cool. those very beautiful uh pictures of the modern temples and then for some of the ancient ones um we got permission from daniel smith to use some of his work over at book of mormon central and when you and i were talking about doing this show we discussed briefly and i'd like you to tell our audience about this how sometimes latter-day saints take the idea of a temple a little bit for granted because it, maybe even as you're growing up, you think, oh, everybody's got to have a temple. You know, that's got to be everywhere. But it's not. And Nibley wrote about the envy of the temple and the Jews don't have a temple and the rest of Christianity doesn't have a temple. 
Latter-day Saints are very unique. Talk, talk a bit well, about that. Well, you know, that. it's kind of interesting because Kevin uh, Christensen has talked about this with John and I on our program a couple of times. Uh, Margaret Barker uh, gave a talk at a Society of Biblical Literature, I think, about Nibley's article of Christian Envy of the Temple. And uh, it was something she ran across early in her career, not really tying it in with the Latter-day Saints, and that kind of came a little later. And in fact, I think John's got an interpreter piece that'll be out in the next week or so uh, specifically about that, and it might even be out this Friday right before the uh, Moses com- or the Matthew Brown conference. But uh, she talks about that, and she, uh, she emphasized how Nibley was opening doors way back then. But we talk about that in our book, too, that, uh, you know, Nibley, Nibley um, really focused on that early in his career in the 1960s. And scholars at the time were very critical of him. They called him, you know, and it wasn't just because, oh, if he's right, there was an apostasy. And so we're all, you know, we, we all have that going on in terms of what they called church history. But it was um, also the initiatory work. They called it initiatory work, meaning people would get instruction of what to do that they could remember and use after they had died in order to progress through the heavens. Well, that was some Gnostic things. Well, in 1975, Nibley put that together. He took his experience in comparative religions, and he wrote the message of the Joseph Smith papyri. And at the back, he took six out. He took six examples. He took the pearl. He took um, the gospel. Some excerpts from the Gospel of Philip. He took some some other things from Egypt and from Judaism, and he kind of put them all together. And um, you know, he used those as examples of this initiatory work. Well, when they did the second edition of the Joseph Smith Papyri, uh, John Gee was the editor, and in the introduction, he said. Now, it's pretty standard to look at some of the Egyptian funerary rites that Nibley was on the fringe of, but now they say it. He says they don't like it, but they acknowledge that. And in fact, that's the same way with his Christian stuff. Back in the 60s, he was ridiculed. He was, he was accused of you know, being on the fringes or reading too much into it. But now you have modern scholars of some of the Nag Hammadi texts or the Gnostic literature, the so-called some of the things that claim to be the teachings Jesus gave after he was resurrected before he went up, uh, the books of Jew. So Aaron Evans, who's a scholar who's specialized in that, um, talks about how those are initiatory rites. In other words, there are uh, signs and tokens and things that people remember, and they're given words to remember or names to remember that they take after they die to pass through the sentinels in order to progress through the heavens and eventually get in the presence of God. Gospel of Philip, the same way. Hugo Lundhog talks about that. And Bas Van Oz is another scholar. But all of these, you know, they're both Scandinavian scholars, and they talk about that. So we kind of address that in our book in a very... Uh, we we try and and put this at a level where the general readers are, are are going to recognize things that they will see from the modern temple endowment, but also know that there are some ancient similarities. And um, so it was a it was a, a process that we went through. Um, 
in particular, basically to show that the temple has always been with us ever since the time of Adam. And it was uh, through the temple and its ordinances that we are reminded about the atonement. We learn about the creation. We learn about the atonement. We learn about how to progress, and we make covenants that help us to enter the presence of God. And so really, we, we go from the restoration of the endowment and, and kind of how the temple, there's a thread of the temple that goes through uh, the restoration. We take that up to essentially uh, the, the dedication of the Salt Lake Temple, and uh, especially when Brigham Young uh, organized and systematized the endowment so that it could be given everywhere the same way through inspiration. And he did that in St. George. The purpose of the St. George Temple and the reason it was built is they could build it year-round. And I think Brigham realized that he would not live to see Salt Lake completed. And so they started the St. George Temple, followed soon by Manti and Logan and, you know, eventually Salt Lake. But they, the, uh, you know, we primarily use secondary literature, I mean, I'm, I don't read ancient languages, and Grant doesn't read ancient languages either. But it was a it was a really fun collaboration. So, you know, I would pass him on something, and he would highlight it and bring it back, and we'd look at it. Or I would have an idea and say, well, you know, now that we've done this part, we we really you you really need a chapter. And I would say it this way: you really need a chapter on Adam to Moses. Well, let's talk about the temple from Adam to Moses. He'd say, yeah, go ahead. Why don't you write that? <laughs> so, you know, but between the two of us, we really came together and spent a lot of time when I, whenever I was up, I'd visit him and, and uh, oftentimes early in the morning for two or three hours before we got going on the day. And um, it would just depend, you know, and then I'd be writing on my own when I'd be down in St. George, whatever, doing my, my work there. And so uh, it, eventually came together and you know we've kind of polished it up and and uh one of the things that we found and one of the most interesting things that came at the end so the, the book starts with the story of moroni's vision not the first vision but moroni's vision because he talked about the book of mormon but immediately after that he talked about the mission of elijah and what was the mission of Elijah? Well, that's all tied in with temple work. And so that first chapter kind of summarizes how eventually Joseph came to realize over time that, that Elijah was the primary figure. So, yes, we have the Book of Mormon, and it's so easy for us when we say Moroni's vision and the Book of Mormon because that was the first thing. But the Lord always does the most important things first, and then he goes to the second, and then he goes to the third. That second one was about Elijah and his mission. And then we, we summarize, as we said, the, as I said, the restoration of the church, uh, just with some, some of the things about the temple that came out. They were even talking about the temple. They learned about the temple in, in uh, their translation of the Book of Mormon, just like they did with the priesthood. Uh, then we focus on the Kirtland Temple and the Missouri experience, and then Nauvoo, and then we go to Latter-day temples, starting with Salt Lake and some of the some of the sacrifices, a big part of the first part of the book is just an emphasis of the faith of the saints in building the temple and in um, all the sacrifices that they made. Yeah. And uh, just some of the some of the stories that that should really never be forgotten. Yeah. 
And uh, then we jump to Jesus's relationship with the temple in the Gospels, and eventually the uh, harrowing of hell, the the story of what Jesus did after he died and was resurrected. And we cover baptism from the dead, too. So a a couple of things I'd like to sort of draw out here, because Mm -hmm. some listeners might be saying, well, wait a minute. So what? I, I, no, 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 no. They won't be saying so what. They're, if they're listening, they'll have an interest in this. But you talked about temples from Adam to Moses, and somebody's listening to that, nodding their head, and they're saying, wait a minute. What temples from Adam to Moses? Yeah. But but that, the, the, the Ark of the Covenant, other things. Talk about Well, temples. the Ark of the Covenant came after that. So we but have. Ta- but, yeah. but talk about, well, at the, at the Exodus, the very end of Moses' tenure, but talk about Adam to Moses, because some people will be scratching their heads wondering what you're talking about that. And then after, I, I'd like you to talk about Jesus, because they'll be saying the same thing. Well, there was this te- temple, certainly during Jesus' time, but what does the 40-day ministry have to do with that? Yeah, is it so, yeah. so talk about those well, we, two things. We, we, we broke the 40-day ministry into two chapters for reasons I'll get into in a minute. But the temples from Adam to Moses, that's chapter 9 of the book. So it takes a little while to get there. The book's got three sections. The first section, of course, is Joseph Smith and the Latter-day Temples. The second one is about Jesus. And then it also covers the 40-day period because it talks about Jesus' relation with the temple was established very early in the Gospels. I mean— the story of John the Baptist immediately sets you in the temple with Jesus. Immediately, you've got the story of Anna and Simeon in the temple. You've got, you know, Jesus teaching as a young man in the temple. Um, in terms of John, one of the scholars, and we quote a lot of non-LDS scholars in this book. I mean, we have about 1,200 footnotes, and uh, I'll tell you, I often say this on my program, that the that the notes and the references are worth the price of the book. And I would say that's the case in this book. Seriously. I mean, you, you can, you can criticize whatever you want about our conclusions and everything else, but I think you'll be hard pressed to say we didn't do our homework, but, um, it just, you know, so you've, you've got that element of the temple in the gospels, but when you talk about Adam and when you talk about Moses, I mean, we begin that chapter um, quoting Ann Madsen, who, by the way, passed away this week. And, uh, you know, our thoughts and prayers are with her family, but she's reunited with her husband, Truman. But Ann is very underrated as a scholar. I mean, you know, partly because Truman was just so phenomenal and so well known in the international community as well as the LDS community. But um, she says modern temples start where ancient temples left off. Ancient temples seem to be symbolic of the Garden of the Lord and a Holy of Holies where God's throne is glimpsed through a veil. The temples of this day move through several more rooms to accommodate the additional ordinances that were yet to be revealed in this dispensation of the fullness of times. So consider the progression through these rooms, ending in a room above the rest, representing the celestial kingdom, our heavenly destination, where we will be welcomed by a heavenly Father who's given us temples to find our way back to his holy presence. I mean, we read the story of the Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and particularly the Book of Moses. And Jeff Bradshaw has done a, an, a, an incredibly effective, you know, he's, he's just done an incredibly effective job of showing these temple relations between that. But not only do we as Latter-day Saints see the temple 
in the Garden of Eden. So do a lot of believing non-LDS scholars. And so, uh, we, you know, we, we quote some of that. We, we talk about elements of the ancient temples that are there from Donald Perry, John Lundquist, who's quoted. In fact, I was just looking at, I don't even know who the scholar was. It was non-LDS about Ezekiel, but they were quoting John Lundquist in his definition of what temples are. But then we, we get to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, they're in the garden. They have that experience. They're given certain commandments. Uh, to multiply, replenish the earth, certain certain things, and, and we itemize those uh, instructions that were given to them in terms of temples and how they, they related. Well, when they were removed from the temple, Genesis doesn't say anything about a sacrifice. The book of Moses does. The book of Jubilees, which is a pseudepigraphic work that came out, and the oldest one that they've got is about 200 years before Christ. That does. Now, you have to be careful when you use Jubilees, and we wrestled with this as part of the book because it clearly matches what we want to say. Um, Joseph Smith had a revelation in 1830 when he wrote the Book of Moses that Adam and Eve sacrificed in an altar when they got out of the Garden of Eden. The Book of Jubilees says the same thing, but it wasn't even known in the West until the 1860s. So... But on the other hand, the book of Jubilees is what you call rewritten scripture, (laughs) definitely, where everything has been rewritten to conform with what they understood were the laws of Moses. So Noah makes certain sacrifices, but the sacrifices are described in particular just as if they'd been the mosaic sacrifices that you get in Exodus. So, you know, you, you always have to balance and weigh these things, and so, so we do that. But we, we emphasize how um, Adam and Eve, um, you know, uh, Adam's role was to be a king as well as a priest. Adam and Eve, part of their uh, command from the Lord, if you were, was to teach their children which is also a commandment that's found in the book of Moses. Um, text from the Dead Sea Scrolls um, depict the glory of Adam. In fact, Adam, our father, you fashioned in the image of your glory. So, um, you know, just a, a, a lot of things there. So there's basically five common occurrences whenever God's commission that he gave to Adam is given to the patriarchs. So one of them is God makes a personal appearance. And the patriarchs. So we go through and and identify them, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. When God appears to them, they build an altar. And even Genesis notes it. They build an altar and they offer sacrifices in order to commemorate this personal appearance of God. And then when you look at the history of Israel throughout the Bible, you see they keep coming back to these places. And why? Because they are sacred. In a way, they are almost as if they are temples like we would recognize as a temple, whether it's Solomon's temple or something else. But, you know, sometimes sacred places don't have to be a physical temple. They can be in the wild. For example, Mount Sinai. Moses saw God. We know that. It was in the wild. Nephi had his visions on high mountains. There's a lot of symbolism about high mountains that that's always there. And we just Ensign Peak and Salt Lake before the temple was completed. Same thing. We we just note that there's a lot of literature about high mountains 
you know, being the equivalent of that. I mean, our book, you know, it could be volumes if you really wanted. And the, we, we would run across certain issues and just say, oh, boy, we could really do a deep dive over here and go out. But then it would take us away from the main message of the book, which is essentially that these rituals, these these sacrifices, these ordinances, these uh, things that we do, which change over time, are all consistent with helping us enter the presence of God. Well, one one of the things I like about your book here, Terry, is that you have a lot of detail in here, but this is not some 900-page treatise that somebody has to be afraid of. This This is... This is, I think, readable and accessible to a, a thoughtful audience, and, and yet you've got some really amazing, fabulous sources. I, I think it strikes a, a wonderful ba- balance. I, I, I really like well, it. Well, thank you. You know, the, the whole purpose of it is to kind of get somebody started and then, you know, hey, check the footnotes. You go to that source, and you, <laughs> will, you, you, you will just find – a lot of doors that are opened. Yeah. I mean, you know, it was it was something that they said about Hugh Nibley, and I don't mean that we're anywhere near that, but he opened the doors for people to go and, and look up these areas. So, you know, it was fascinating that um, we... So we go from Adam to Enoch to Noah to Melchizedek, in kind of in that order. We talk about certain temple applications. We talk about uh, non-biblical sources to go to to find information about some of these guys, um, Enoch and Melchizedek in particular. It's fascinating because they're only mentioned once in the Old Testament, twice in the case of Melchizedek, depending on which translation you use, and then nothing, crickets. <laughs> you know. And then Melchizedek, all of a sudden we get this, this two or three chapters in Hebrews. Where does that come from? But then when you go to the Dead Sea Scrolls, when you go to the Nag Hammadi texts, you go to the Book of Enoch. I mean, there were 13 copies, different copies that we know of, at least, in the Dead Sea Scrolls of the copy of First Enoch. So Very it was cool. obviously something that was well used in the Qumran community. This is Interpreter Radio, and if you've joined us somewhere in the middle, we are talking with Terry Hutchison about a new booklet that, or, or short book that he's published with... Um, Grant Gifford called Pathway to Heaven. It's a fabulous book. It's it's very well footnoted. How does somebody get a copy of oh, this? Oh, you know what? Just go to Amazon. You can go to Amazon. You can get it. The Kindle, it, we're, we're having a little trouble with the technicalities of that. I've, I've seen two different versions, and one of them jumbled the, the headings a bit. I didn't like it. And uh, then the other one... Um, just jammed everything together, so the middle of it was kind of meshed together. So we're still kind of working that out. But the paperback, uh, I I got yeah. the first one today, and it's it's excellent, full color. Um, the pictures are in full color, and um, it, it's it's really. I'm very pleased with the package. You know, I'm doing this a disservice by calling it a booklet because it's 300 pages when you get to the very end. I was going to say, thank you. But it's got some (laughs) – the the point I'm trying to make is that this is not some – you know, thousand-page encyclopedia. This is this is a great work with with a lot of information in a shorter, incredibly – 
Well, yeah, jam-packed. You know, it, I mean, that's, that's that was the, point the thing. I'm tra- that's the point I'm it, trying it, to make, you, and you, I'm probably you, not saying it the right way. No, but when you're when you're dealing with these issues, I mean, for example, yeah. we have a chapter on uh, the feasts, the commanded feasts, uh, and some of the just some of the symbolisms between, uh, you know, the Savior and these feasts, whether it's Passover whether it's the Feast of Weeks, whether it's the Feast of the Tabernacles, the three commanded feasts, and then we include the Sabbath in that. And, um, uh, for example, in, in studying the Sabbath, the relationship between the Sabbath and the temple and us using and accessing the Sabbath to enter God's presence on a weekly basis, even without a physical temple, was uh, a real education for me and, and for Grant as well. And, you know, we're both lifelong members of the church, both of us, you know, worked in the temple at various times and among other things that we've done. And it was, it was really educational, but we found that there were so many areas where you could really do a deep dive. So we just let the sources kind of speak for themselves, tried to summarize them the best we could, and then would move on. Yeah. So you're, you're, you have three sections, first section, mm-hmm. Latter-day temples and yeah, there's they're, five they're chapters kind of evolution, if, mm-hmm. if, if you will. And then you have, the third section, which we've talked about a little bit, which is sort of ancient temples, and the, the, section two is the 40-day ministry yeah, in the Jesus yeah. era. Before we run out of time, talk about that. We've probably got well, about eight, once eight again, minutes w- here, w- give With or take. Jesus, each of, the, each of the four Gospels has a very distinctive view of the Savior. And da- David Seeley and uh, Richard Hopfel did a book called In His Father's House— Several years ago, I think I might be getting that title wrong, and I apologize to them. But that is just an excellent. Uh, in it's called My Father's House: Temple Worship and Symbolism in the New Testament in 1994. And then there's several other non-LDS scholars that we supplement that with. But that's a really good summary of Jesus's relationship with the temple. And then you know near the end. Uh, when he's on the cross and when he dies, the veil of the temple is torn. And the three synoptics write about that specifically. And Matthew adds some what, what Daniel Gertner calls in an excellent book called The Torn Veil. He, he adds what he calls the special material. Uh, N.T. Wright talks about that as well, where you have the earth shaking and you have other people appearing to people in Jerusalem. Now that they're resurrected, yes. But you know, it, it's it, it, after that we talk about how Jesus goes to begin the preaching of the gospel to the dead, and we, you know, we talk about Joseph F. Smith's vision. But also, it's very interesting. New Testament scholar Richard Bauckham, uh has found some some other work that shows that the people of that time believed that it was possible to repent when you were in hell, and eventually to be saved if you repented. Well, you know, you have, you have other elements where there are teachings that Jesus and his apostles went and baptized the dead. Well, they didn't really do that. So that was a concern because obviously, you know, as Latter-day Saints, we have a little bit different idea about that vicariously. And then we talk about the baptism for the dead and how it's been treated in some of the scholarship and some of the ancient works. But essentially... Nearly everybody admits, yeah, they were baptizing yeah, they were people yeah. for vicariously. Well, then we get to chapter 7. And chapter 7 
is called the 40-Day Ministry Documents. And in a sense, and that one's a little bit more of a historical chapter. And in other words, what we're trying to do there is we are introducing the reader to what are the 40-day documents, what was the period of time, why were they there. So, for example, uh, in 1975, the Ensign published an article on what Jesus might have taught during the period between his resurrection and when he went up into heaven. And S. Kent Brown and Wilfred Griggs both wrote that. It's called The Post-Resurrection Ministry. Um, they, that was published in a, in a book called Studies in Scripture, which is a little paperback series with bright colors on the side. You probably remember it. Some of the readers might. Uh, we cite to that one. But then there's, there's these others. And the early Christian literature is filled with claims to waking and dream visions of Jesus post-mortem. So there's lots of different claims, and the reason that they claim that is because, well, okay, whatever Jesus taught in his mortal life, if he taught it once he was back from the dead, it must be even more important. And so that's where we go there. But you've got to be careful in dealing with these things. I mean, John Gee wrote an interpreter article way back in 2012 about this, and he t- says, listen, if you want to, if you want to understand how, how this material you know, is used— Pay attention to how well it deals with the, um, with the first basic principles and ordinances of the gospel, because a lot of them veer off into really different directions. I mean, we, we struggled with this. So the first chapter is simply to identify that, the Nag Hammadi texts, the books of Jew, uh, Nag Hammadi texts were kind of like the Dead Sea Scrolls, but they were... Um, Early Christians, early Christian from the documents century, found in uh, Egypt, from the fourth century. Yeah. And, yeah, and in fact, if you want to read a fun story, read uh, read James Robertson's Nag Hammadi story. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's another one that's kind of expensive from Brill. But uh, then the eighth chapter, we break it down and we talk about the different similarities between many of the documents. So Hugh Nibley opens the door that talks about that. So we start with. Uh, a definition of what mysticism is, because a lot of people have a real negative connotation to that. And ritual, they have a negative connotation. And so the scholarly language in particular talks about those two items. They talk about the cult. That's not a negative word. It's just a technical term that refers to whatever's going on in the temple. But once again, it's something that as most Latter-day Saints, we're a little uncomfortable with it because we don't see it in a lot of our literature. So, you know, we, we introduce people to that. We talk about the transformation. We talk about initiation ordinances to enter God's presence. Um, a quote that we use a lot is the quote from Brigham Young from 1853, when he dedicated the cornerstone of the Salt Lake Temple, he specifically said, your endowment is to receive all those ordinances in the house of the Lord, which are necessary for you after you have departed this life to enable you to walk back to the presence of the Father, passing the angels who stand as sentinels, being enabled to give them the key words, the signs and tokens pertaining to the holy priesthood and gain your eternal exaltation in spite of earth and hell. Well, a lot of these Nagamati texts, the Gnostic documents, they talk about having to pass by what they call archons who guard the presence. You have to have the passwords. You have to be dressed in a certain way, or you have to become invisible. And DNC 132 says that once you're married by that power of the priesthood, you're enabled to pass by the sentinels, as it were. Um, And so, you know, there are so many. In fact, we quote that Brigham Young thing several times in the book, 
simply to make sure that people always have it in mind when they're looking at these ancient documents. And so that's really what the what the 40 days is about. And, you know, it 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 it's hard to put in a book something that eventually I came to see because Hugh Nibley, we started this with the premise. Hugh Nibley says, you know, you can almost go through the temple with these documents. Now, Hugh Nibley said that in 1966. Nobody's really done much with it since. Um, and once you read those documents, it's pretty obvious. But if you spend enough time with them, eventually, um, as, as I did, I, I could kind of see what Nibley was talking about, and it was uh, it was a very enlightening experience. Now, the third section of the book, of course, we talk about Adam to Moses, and then we talk about Moses. We have a chapter on the tabernacle itself, a bit about it, and about the priestly robes. We have a chapter on the feasts. We have a chapter on the Ark of the Covenant itself and what we think happened to it, which is essentially we think it was destroyed with the Babylonians. We have a chapter on the uh, Yom Kippur. And in particular, it's important to note in Yom Kippur, a lot of what we understand about Yom Kippur and a lot of what Alfred Edersheim and others wrote was from the Mishnah, which actually came after the Herod's temple was destroyed. And in our last chapter, we identify and talk specifically about areas where the doctrine about Jesus Christ and his mission was changed as a result of the loss of the temple. And uh, the Mishnah was a big part of that. I mean, we quote Jacob Neusner, we quote Naftali Cohen, we quote uh, Philip Alexander and several other non-LDS scholars about that issue. And so uh, we, we try and establish in the, in, the chap- in the chapter, you know, in a simple way in our book as opposed to a technical way that somebody else would, um, what's historical and what's maybe not as historical. So, for example, it's historical that certain things were done in the Yom Kippur ceremony, but it's also not that that, that um, the priest didn't have to answer to the rabbis. The priest didn't have to stay up all night. He didn't have to sign an oath saying he would do it right. He didn't have to go through a week of instruction from the rabbis on how to do his job. In other words, you know. Those kind of things. So, And we also have a section in Chapter 14 about the Temple in the Book of Mormon. A lot of good work by Jack Welch and the people at the old farms, uh, as well as Book of Mormon Central today, that have talked about those things. And we, we, we introduce the reader to those kind of works, and then they can build on it from there. Very cool. We are talking this hour with Terry Hutchison, who wrote with Grant Gifford, The Temple... Pathway to Heaven, go get it on Amazon. It's fabulous. Has scads of wonderful footnotes and some wonderful insights for Latter-day Saints. We'll be back uh, after this break. And honestly, the station's up and has had uh, funky stuff here about the news at the top of the hour. So if there's a break for just a minute or two here, stay tuned. We haven't had a lightning strike. We will be back. And we'll be talking about Come Follow Me on the other side of the hour. Th- thanks, Terry, for sharing your book. This well, thanks, is really Martin. cool. I Thank appreciate you it. so much. We'll be right back. Stay tuned, listeners. We'll be right back after this. Now, The Interpreter Show, with discussion, debate, and the latest information on all kinds of religious issues and topics.
All right, let's start our second hour of Interpreter Radio. We've just taken a very short break because no one in the radio business likes dead airtime. That's sort of uh, not a good thing. So here we are. We are back. This is the second hour of our show. It's Martin Tanner in studio with Terry Hutchison. He shared last Good hour. evening. <laughs> Thank you. He shared his, his book, which... Go get it on Amazon. It would be really, really worth your while. This section of our show, this portion of our show, will be about two of the last two books, almost at the end, Hey Guy and Zechariah. I want another year. <laughs> I want another year of Old Testament. I am with you on that. There are so many people who, who are not there, but I... I'm all I, over. I, I love the Old Testament. Yeah, if we yeah. could do two two years on the New Testament, it'd be fabulous. Let me do our short little intro and um, give our information about our sponsor. This interpreter radio show is brought to you by the Interpreter Foundation, whose mission it is to support the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints through scholarship by encouraging personal study and faith by providing accurate and detailed information to the public and church members about the church. Interpreter Foundation also makes available free to everybody on the Internet scholarship on a wide variety of subjects. Find them on interpreterfoundation.org. And the Interpreter Foundation also responds to misunderstandings about the church and defends the church against criticisms. The Interpreter Foundation is not owned by or affiliated with or controlled by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and therefore, for all the errors of which I commit on the air here, uh, the church is not responsible, and also the same for others. Yes, and all the errors Martin commits. Yes. <laughs> That's right. Not the rest of us. Not the rest of you. There you go. And so, as Terry mentioned last hour, and you know, I should do this more as, as I start these uh, programs, the interpreter is a 501c3. It's a nonprofit, and it runs by donations. And so, if you have interest in supporting the defense of the church and wonderful scholarship, go to interpreterfoundation.org, find the little donate button. And if you give 50 cents, $5, $500, $5,000, or anything in between, we would be forever grateful because this is a non-paid effort by people who just love the church well, and love yourself. scholarship. I mean, if I sell enough books, I'll be paid, right? No. <laughs> but not through no. interpreter. No, that will true. be on your uh, own Also, efforts. you yeah. should know 501c3 means it is tax deductible. That's right. Okay. And I would say 95 plus percent of your donation is used for what you donate it for. So very little overhead. Very little overhead. It's, you know, there's a little bit to keep the technical stuff of the website itself going, but really n none of the leaders, none of the board members, none of the participants, none of the co-hosts, certainly. Um, <laughs> well, maybe Martin, because he's oh, no. the senior. <laughs> oh, no. no <laughs> but no. seriously, yeah. everybody is doing this because we believe in the work. We believe in the work of the Interpreter Foundation. We believe in supporting 
the church and its doctrines and teachings and doing whatever we can within our purview and within our talents and abilities to to do it over over 10 years of weekly articles with a backlog of months a backlog of months and nobody submitted a thing to interpreter they'd be able to produce articles for the next several months yeah and i'm sure people will submit there are oh, some yeah. great things yeah there are some wonderful things uh this particular interpreter radio show is sponsored by LDSAgents.com, which is a network of over 3,000 friendly, top quality real estate agents serving Latter day Saints nationwide and in Canada for more than 20 years. If you are buying or selling a home, please consider using LDSAgents.com for your purchase or sale. You will be happy if you do. And remember, they speak your language. They understand your needs. LDSagents.com. We're proud to have them as our sponsor. And now, the Old Testament books, Haggai and Zechariah. Uh, <laughs> I'm so excited. Good. Well, <laughs> you want to start us off here? And well, I can I, you know, we I can remember reading the, the first time, well, the second time, because I read the whole Standard Works before my mission, but realistically, when I was about 13 or 14, I wasn't paying as much attention to the Old Testament as I would later. But I distinctly remember reading Zechariah as a young missionary, and all of a sudden, the prophecies of the Savior, you've got the 30 silver pieces, you've got riding into Jerusalem on an ass, you've got, um, you know, these are the wounds I got in the house of my friends. All of the things there were just amazing to me. So later in the last decade, when I've started really uh, spending a lot more time studying the prophets and the Old Testament and uh, looking for Jesus in the Old Testament, looking for the temple in the Old Testament, um, I, I came to realize that most people group these two books together, but they do it in a, in a little bit of a different way. So they do Haggai and the first half of Zechariah together. In fact, I, I find that I've got on my shelves two or three different volumes, one from Anchor, one from the Old Testament Library's commentary series, where they combine them. I think the international, uh, well, anyway, just a couple of the others will do the same thing. They combine Haggai, they combine Zechariah 1 through 8. But Zechariah 9 through 14, they treat completely differently. And while it's a little bit of a simplification to say that they do that, Zechariah is different, completely different. And it was something I noticed um, as I was getting ready for today's lesson, particularly with regard to the first part of Zechariah. Notice that when he gets a prophecy or he sees something, he asks an angel for the interpretation about it. Now, this is something that uh, occurs in the Old Testament that we don't really talk about very often. And it's an area that happens in the Book of Mormon as well. And I'm fascinated by it, but I haven't you know, because of the project that you mentioned earlier tonight and we talked about, I, I haven't been able to turn my attention to it as much as I would like. But there was a, a, a doctrinal thesis that I ran across several years ago called the interpreting angel, what they call the interpreting angel motif in the Old Testament. 
So for a period of time, when a prophet would see a vision, he would just describe the vision. Period. Okay, end of story. The, the, this, the prophet would just write, this is what I saw, this is what I did, whether, you know, I think Isaiah is a classic example of it, okay? But by the time we get to Zechariah, by the time we get to the second temple period, which is after the exile, so, you know, when we're talking about biblical studies, and this is something that we, that we found in the book, and when I've given talks about it in certain places, you know, to regular audiences of just, you know, lay people, if I use the term pre-exilic, they don't know what I'm talking about. But the exile occurred between when Solomon's temple was destroyed by the Babylonians about 587 B.C., and the second temple begins about 515 B.C., when Zerubbabel built the second temple. And that temple lasted until it was destroyed in 70 AD. Now we call that Herod's temple only because Herod expanded the temple site. He didn't really rebuild the temple, but he expanded the site from where it was. But that second temple period runs after that 70 years when the Jews didn't have a temple. Okay. After that period, when a prophet receives a vision like Zechariah here, he gets he has to have it described to him okay by a holy being by an angel so here in in this one he'll talk about this he'll he'll say um the lord uh the angel who talked with me said proclaim thus saith the lord of hosts i am very jealous for jerusalem and if you know this is in the first chapter of zechariah so there will be other things when he'll see the uh, two olive pillars and he'll say, what is this? The angel will then tell him what it is. Um, that's called the interpreting angel motif. We see it in the Book of Mormon. Notice, Lehi has the vision of the tree of life. Okay? When Lehi describes the tree of life to Nephi and his brothers, he says, this is what I saw. He doesn't have an interpreter. He doesn't you know, when he sees the vision um, that sends him from Jerusalem, that sends his family into the wilderness, when he sees the Lord in the prophetic vision in the first chapter of First Nephi, he actually sees it. But when Nephi has the vision of what his father saw, he has the spirit of the Lord telling him, this is the condescent, you know, what is the meaning of the fruit? This is the condescension of the Lord. This is, he, he has that described to him. Later on in the Book of Mormon, Alma does the same thing. He says, the angel explained it to me this way. So it's, I'm not sure what that break was, why all of a sudden we have prophets beforehand just reporting directly what they see. And then later we have prophets reporting what they see as explained to them by the heavenly beings that are with them as they're seeing that. And this is a great example of that because all through here, Zechariah is constantly turning to the angel to find out, the angel of the Lord, to find out what this means, what it stands for, what, you know, how to apply it. And um, that that's one of the things that really struck me about this area as I've studied it. And I was really surprised to see that... Um, after Isaiah and Ezekiel, even ahead of Jeremiah, I have been more interested in Zechariah than I have not been able to attend to it as I desired, but I'm ready to now. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. 
great, great couple of books. Uh, short overview of Hey Guy for our, our teachers out there so that you can <clears throat> maybe mention to your class at the beginning of your class what, what's in this book. By 520 B.C., many of the Jews had returned to Judah from their exile <clears throat> in Babylon. The leaders were doing okay, but many of the ordinary everyday Jews were really just struggling to survive. It was a very harsh and difficult time. And the Lord tells Haggai here at the beginning uh, that their struggle is because the temple has not been rebuilt. And he suggests to them that they need to respect the Lord and build the temple. And if they did so, they would be blessed. And that's the same kind of a theme that you see in the latter days. Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and other great church leaders have repeatedly told church members that as they attend the temple— and in the earlier days, as the temple was built, that as they would uh, complete the temple, it would be a great, great blessing to those and to many others. And so very similar themes by Haggai here and the, the early church leaders and even current ones. Well, if today. I remember right, Haggai, um, after as he was preaching or about that time, they went and they reestablished the altar. And they started the foundation of what Solomon's temple had been, but then they didn't do anything with it for about twenty years. Right. And uh, some of the, you know, some of these prophets were political leaders, and it's really hard to tell, um, you know, especially in the Persian era, it's really hard to tell uh, what is historical, what has been edited. For example, the Deuteronomistic history. We, we really struggled with that in the book that we talked about in the last hour um, because the Deuteronomists hated the kings. <laughs> and they didn't like the idea of a personal appearance of the Savior. And so it's natural that when they write in their histories, you have Joshua, Judges, First and Second Kings, and First and Second Samuel. Notice how every king, with a couple of exceptions, eventually falls. No matter how good they are, David, Solomon, Saul, um, you know, one of the kings goes in and performs the ordinances in the temple, and then he gets leprosy. Well, you know, Melchizedek was a king. The ideal is for you to be a, have kings and priests and for them to be the same. And David did that. And the Savior gave it the stamp of his approval when he, you know, when he gave that example of what David did by feeding his men the showbread in the temple. And the kings usually determined where the temple sites were instead of the high priests. And that the, the Deuteronomists couldn't keep it out of the history because it was actually that way. That's something that Margaret Barker emphasizes a lot. That's something Kevin Christensen emphasizes a lot. And that's something we found in our research that was really true by non-LDS scholars is that, you know, there's always a theme here. So so the political theme, if you will, of Zechariah and Haggai is it's almost as if there's a little bit of a damper, especially on Haggai as a prophet. I mean, the great thing about Zechariah is even though he's one of the political leaders, these visions he's got are just amazing. 
and there's an angel there, and then all of a sudden the angel whips out the measuring stick. And the last time we saw that was at the end of Ezekiel when the, when the angel whipped out the measuring stick and started laying out the heavenly temple at the end, um, you know, where, where, where um, Ezekiel is seeing the heavenly temple in the last days. So it's just some real powerful uh, emphasis. But whenever we, we read and study this, it, it's always important to pierce whatever the agenda was of whoever put this together. We believe in the Bible as far as it is translated correctly, but even as far as it's been handed down to us. I mean, and we, have, we just have to know that it's so old that we don't always have a pure manuscript or translation. We think we have quite a bit of the New Testament, and we have some problems with that. But when it comes to the old, yeah. it's way out there. And the, the earliest significant manuscripts that we have of the Old Testament date to about 300 B.C. with the Dead Sea Scrolls. And that's not even that. It's not even that far when, back when, when, exactly. you, when you get right down to it. But it was a quantum leap when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Yeah, and, and you find uh, some things that are remarkably the same. People talk about the Great Isaiah Scroll amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls and how similar it is to current ones. But kind of depends on your point of view. There are some pretty significant changes, and and um, uh, it would be really interesting to somehow be able to do the time machine thing and go back to five or six or seven or 800 BC and see what scriptures yeah, look what, like. What then. did they have in writing? What came down orally? Yeah. How did that all come out? But I'll tell you, when it comes to Isaiah, Donald Perry is probably the leading scholar in the world. And I'm not just saying that because, oh, he goes to BYU. I mean, his latest work is very technical from Brill, and it is about the variance in the text of Isaiah. And he really is the scholar right now who has the best handle on the great scroll of Isaiah from the Dead Sea Scrolls. And if anybody can tell us about that, it's Donald Perry. Yeah. And, um, you know, it doesn't matter what religion you are, how you feel about Brigham Young or Latter-day Saints or anything else. You have to acknowledge that that's Donald Perry is the guy. Yeah. Well— and if you believe in Latter-day Revelation, which we do, and if you believe that Joseph Smith's um, articles of faith were inspired, which we do, then that tells you that we believe the Bible to be the Word of God as far as it is translated correctly. And our, our current usage of the word translates a little more narrow, I, I would say, that that pretty much means we believe the Bible to be the Word of God as far as it has been uh, translated, transmit, transmitted, and not reworked yeah. <laughs> to us. I mean, it, there, there are obviously some major changes. You know, the when we think about the Israelites returning to Jerusalem, though, after the exile, they were established in Babylon. And Jeremiah in particular had said, hey, listen, you guys are going to be here a while spread out, settle down, your children are going to grow up, they're going to get married, um, you know, all, all of that, that that was taking place. So when they came time to come back under Haggai, under Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, you know, Zechariah, all at that time, 
not very many came back. I think the first group was only about 5,000. And in fact, the city of Jerusalem itself maybe hit a population, and I think John Gee was telling us this, maybe 10,000 about that time. And so this this with Haggai at the first, it kind of sounded a little like President Nelson. So when you go to Haggai chapter 1, verse 7, and I, you know, you and I both have various translations kicking around here so the listener can read it, but um, he's essentially saying that uh, the word came through Haggai the prophet, beginning in verse three, that was part of the end of verse three, now verse four. Is it a time for you yourselves to live in your well roofed houses while this house, meaning the temple, lies in ruins? Now, these are the words of the Lord of hosts. Now, this is a sign right here, by the way, the Lord of hosts, that the Deuteronomists, they're not in charge of this thing, okay? Because they hated that term. Because the reason was, once again, the Lord of hosts, the hosts of heaven are the angels. And um, we actually talk about this a little bit in our book in, in about one of the feasts, how they did away with the angels. They did away with the fire and the lightning and thunder. And in fact, at parts, they changed the day, the weekly reading of the scriptures in the synagogues because they didn't like they they didn't like what that reminded people of. They reminded them of some of the earlier beliefs. It's a kind of a theme of Margaret Barker that she's more aggressive than say I would be, but it, there is an element of of truth in what she's saying. But he says, "Consider your way of life. You have sown much but reaped little. You eat but never enough to satisfy." You drink, but never enough to cheer you. You are clothed, but never warm. And he who earns wages puts them into a purse with a hole in it. I've been there. In fact, I'm there now. (laughs) You know, it's kind of like the Nephites. These are the words of the Lord of hosts. Consider your way of life. Go up into the hill country, fetch timber, build the house. Consider your way of life. President Nelson has said that recently. Consider your way of life. Make fundamental changes in our way of life. What what are some of the things you think he's referring to there? I think, well, sacrament meeting today uh, in my ward, it's a fifth Sunday. They always do something special. And the focus was on what the first presidency wants us to do is a major shift the members aren't there to support the church. The shift should be the church is there to support the members in their gospel efforts at home. Now, that's not that, – that doesn't mean there's going to be some incredible new change or, or, or something, but the emphasis is different. And, and that's the same thing that's going on with Haggai here. You've, you've got the emphasis – Shifting with the people according to the commandment of the prophet Haggai, he's saying, hey, I know you're destitute. I know you're there in some really difficult times. This, this is very much like the building of the Kirtland Temple and the, yeah, the Temple in yeah. Nauvoo. The people are starving. They're still building the temple because they that, know that they'll be That was the blessed. amazing thing that we found is just – you know, and in St. George as well. They're eating dandelions if they're lucky, yep. and yet they're building they're the temple. They're building the temple. And that's what Haggai is telling, you know, Haggai, Haggai, tomato, tomato, I, however you want to say it. He, he is telling the people here, 
focus not on yourselves, focus on the temple and building the temple. And here, you know, this is from the contemporary English version, uh, chapter 2, verse 7. I will shake the nations and their treasures will be brought here. Then the brightness of my glory will fill this temple. All silver and gold belong to me, and I promise that this new temple will be more glorious than the first one. That is an idea that when the people heard it, they must have thought, that's crazy. Solomon's well, I would have said that. Not yes. only that, but they didn't have the ark. They and did. they never did. That Yes, and I... You know, last hour I liked your comment. I also believe, you know, sorry, Indiana Jones, you're not going to find the ark somewhere. <laughs> the I still I love that, though. Bab- it's in a government warehouse somewhere. Yeah. That's still the best ending. <laughs> the Babylonians, I, they got rid of it. And, and that's kind of what Jeremiah says, but that's a story for yeah. a different day. So um, I wanted to dovetail on one other comment that you made that I think is is less understood than many people often get, and that is the influence that was made by Babylon and Egypt and the other places where the Israelites were scattered between, you know, the scattering and when they came back. Just a simple illustration of that. When you look at all of the New Testament manuscripts, virtually all of them are in Greek. Why would that be? That's because the whole world spoke Greek. Yeah. The whole world spoke Greek. And by this time, the Old Testament that was being read amongst the Jews was the Septuagint. Uh, But that's not what the Catholics wound up with. No, but that's because Jerome changed everything in 400 AD. They they went with the Vulgate one. Well, yeah, and Mm -hmm. and that's Latin. But... The point I'm making here is that when they come back, all of their children speak Greek probably better than they speak Hebrew. They speak both, but they're immersed in Greek society, Greek literature, Greek language, and the Jews do not want to lose their religion and its impact on their youth. So they make a compromise. They have a Bible and Old Testament in Greek, and that's what was predominant at the time of Jesus. That's how monumental this impact was that you were talking about, the influence of Babylon and, and oh, yeah. why everybody yeah. stayed, and that's huge. Well, and you know, it's it's kind of interesting because one of the things, in fact, if you read the work of uh, C.T.R. Hayward, there's a book called um, The Name of Israel, um, I'll, I'll have to find it. I'm sorry. I'm having a brain cramp, which is unusual. But um, essentially, he he talks about the interpretation of the name of Israel um, in various situations and scenarios. So first of all, he talks about it in the Hebrew texts and the ancient manuscripts, the Masoretic text, as we call it. Then he goes to the same passages in the Septuagint, the Greek. They are different. Yes. The translators have 
agendas. And so you have to kind of sort through those. Yes. And then you have it in Jubilees, which is another thing where they add another layer on to make them more faithful, particularly the patriarchs. To the law of Moses, and we we kind of talk about that a little bit in in the book that you, that we wrote. You see this all the time in the New Testament. They say, and as the prophet said, and you go trying to find it in the Old Testament, and it's not there. And yeah. why is it not there? Well, because you know the stuff that's come down to us through, you know, as you trace back the King James and through the Vulgate and things, and you, you eventually get to Jerome's new translations of the Bible. You don't get to the Septuagint. If you went to the Septuagint, you'd find a lot of those. You might find a few of them, But if you get to Jerome's, you you don't. Mm -hmm. And um, anyway. But you were were talking about Babylon. You know, we we wrote about that a little bit in our last chapter, where it's called the the temple loss, okay, The, the results of the loss of the temple. Those taken to Babylon found themselves living in the most advanced civilization of the ancient world. The Jews were not the only foreign people in Babylon, a great metropolitan area surpassing all other cities in the Orient and the Middle East. But the Jews seemed to have a kind of relative freedom there. I mean, once they were taken there, Babylonians didn't care. So they retained their separate identity as a people, even when they were exposed to foreign gods of a pagan religion. They participated in the Babylonian economic and political life while continuing to resist the influence of outside religions. Those in exile were cut off from being able to worship at the temple even before its destruction. See, so some of them were were taken before. I mean, the the destruction of Jerusalem occurred in stages, and I think a lot of people may not realize that. But those in exile, um, it forced a reconsideration of how to access Yahweh in a foreign land. And a belief in the mobility of Yahweh arose during this period. So um, that's, you know, this is kind of one of the results of the loss of the temple is all of a sudden the foundation of what was taught and what was thought about God kind of was taken away. But there had been a movement of centralization. So initially, and we, we talk a little about this in the book, but it's a, it's a major area of biblical study in and of itself is People could worship God in a lot of different places, and then eventually it was centralized to the temple, okay? And then when the temple was destroyed, then they did something else. But um, the Babylonian Jews emphasized the preservation of the ancient traditions. And so the Jews prioritized beliefs in the scriptures and other rituals, and they longed to practice temple rituals, but the temple was destroyed and the practices they adopted fell short of what had been in place before their relocation. So that's when they started to, to do that. But they, they always kept together and they tried to emphasize that. And while it was a positive thing to avoid, you know, all of these pagan influences, all of these outside influences on their people and their culture, especially their young people, I think there was almost an overreaction to the point where it affected their ability to understand the mission of Jesus because they were so focused on the worship of the one God, they forgot kind of that second God, that son of God, if you will. And that's one of the main themes of Margaret's work is that. And, you know, that's where the temple in particular kept pointing to the Messiah, the blood that, that the, the whole point of the law of Moses was to lead people to the Messiah. The Nephites had a pure understanding of the law of Moses. That's why 
they recognize Jesus Christ. I mean, if I could see a word in the gold plates that Joseph Smith translated, it would be, what word was he looking at when he translated it to Jesus Christ? I mean, I'm not, I'm not bothered by any of the other, and I'm not bothered by this either, but if I could see one word, that would be the word. Because, mm-hmm. because they had a pure understanding of it. And those that did not were kind of like the Deuteronomists. And a good example of that in the Book of Mormon is the priests of Noah. They had lost the understanding of the Messiah. They had lost the understanding of Revelation. They kept the law only in and of itself. And that's exactly what we see in the New Testament with Jesus and the Pharisees. And so that's kind of what was going on here. But a very small sliver of the Jews wanted to leave Babylon. After 70 years there, they were established. They were getting wealthy. They were participating in the trade. And they felt that they were protected. It's no, it's no um, surprise that one of the two places where the Talmud was crafted about, you know, about a thousand years later, Babylon was one of them. Right. Yeah, pe- people tend to think of uh, Babylon as being this horrible kingdom that conquered all these other places. And it was. But once you, once you got, got there. to Babylon, <laughs> you, you were pretty much left yeah. alone as, as long as you didn't cause insurrections. Yeah. And in some it's like ways, Las Vegas. <laughs> Maybe Washington, D.C. No, yeah, I didn't something. say that. You didn't it, hear me say that. That's not, yeah, we did, but that's okay. It, it, and it's also a little bit like the Roman Empire. People tend to think of the Romans as being so harsh, evil, and, and awful. And they conquered a lot of different countries, but they pretty much allowed people to believe whatever they wanted to as long as they acknowledged the emperor supreme. And for most, that wasn't a problem. But when you got to the Jews and early Christians, that was a problem. Yeah. And they paid for it with their lives. They did. They did. But other than that, which was pretty huge, if it were not for that, if they would have said, oh, yeah, the emperor's the highest, that, that they would have been okay and they would have been treated well. But yeah. I digress. All right. So other thoughts that you would like to make well, about from Haggai, Haggai before we from move Haggai, to- we go to Zechariah, and right. Zechariah is messianic in the extreme. I mean, you know, as I was talking about earlier, when I read it as a young missionary, I mean, there's just some passages there that you, you just can't ignore. But right out of the first chapter, I mean— I've got the uh, I've got the the Jewish translation, the Jewish Publication Society translation right here, and um, in verse eight, I wish I'd brought my glasses. <laughs> in chapter one, in the night I had a vision. I saw a man mounted on a bay horse standing among the myrtles in the deep, and the myrtles are the uh, between the mountains. Okay. So in the Septuagint, that's mountains. But for some reason, we we get this word myrtles. Just don't worry about that. And behind him were bay, sorrel, and white horses. I asked, what are those, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me answered, I will let you know what they are. Then the man who was standing among the myrtles or the mountains spoke up and said, these were sent out by the Lord to roam the earth. And uh, they've roamed the earth and found all the earth dwelling in tranquility. Well, once again... They're roaming the earth. They're going to and fro. Now, that's a phrase that stands out in my mind from Job. 
Remember? Yep. Uh, it, the Lord comes across Satan, the he's Satan, if you will. To he's roaming to and fro on the earth. Yes. Yep. Now, he's fu- not finding everything obviously happy and peaceful, but he says, well, look at my servant Job. What do you think about him? And then they start that whole drama. But also, the angels are sent back and forth in the book of Revelations. And Jesus talks about how the angels are sorting in the last days. So, you know, you get this tie-in right here, immediately going to the last days. This isn't even the first days. This is the last days. And that's when later, you know, in a, in a chapter soon, well, as I said, we get the, we get the heavenly messenger who's, who's, got the, who's got the measuring tape. Um. Verse 16, Assuredly, thus saith the Lord, I graciously return to Jerusalem. My house shall be built in her, declares the Lord of hosts. The measuring line is being applied to Jerusalem. He says in chapter 2, I looked up and I saw four horns. I asked the angel who talked with me, what are those? Those, he replied, are the horns that tossed Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four smiths. What are they coming to do? He replied, those are the horns that tossed Judah so that no man could raise his head, and these men have come to throw them into a panic, to hew down the horns of the nations that raise a horn against the house of land of Judah to toss it. So in other words, oh, and then here we are. I looked up, and I saw a man holding a measuring line. Where are you going, I asked. <laughs> to measure Jerusalem, he replied, to see how long and wide it is to be. But the angel who talked to me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him. Run to that young man and tell him. I mean, you know, you just get these angels and all of a sudden you've got this stuff. And this is like, wow. This is, this is tremendous. And uh, when, when you look at it, um, one, of the, one of the resources that's available to people that, you know, if they wanted to get some, some money and, and find a resource for interesting use on the New Testament, it's called a commentary on the New Testament use of the Old Testament. It's by uh, G.K. Beale and D.A. Carson. They're the editors. It's put out by uh, Baker Press. And uh, essentially, there's a second edition to it. And it's just everywhere there's an illusion or everywhere there's a usage in the New Testament of the Old Testament. And it just breaks it down book by book in the New Testament. And uh, so, you know, for this purpose, you can go look up all the references to Zechariah and then move it around and see, see who uses it the most. And no surprise, Revelations. Revelations, and then a couple of the Gospels, because obviously you have those later prophecies specifically about the Savior, about the betrayal, about the entry into Jerusalem. And I I just can't get enough of this little book, you know, and the chapters are short, too. It's great. One of the ones that I I wanted to bring up here was not long after the Dead Sea Scrolls were published, there was this big controversy. There there was... um, uh, Eisenman and, and, and Wise, these two professors who had this Dead Sea Scrolls text, and mm-hmm. you know I should have pulled it out, but but they called it the it's Pierce okay, Messiah it. Scroll, and they the Pierce Messiah text, and and there was debate back and forth and back and forth about whether this was real or not, and um, Biblical Archaeology Review has all these scholars that think it's been sort of debunked at this point in time. Uh, But I have often thought that, number one, it was not debunked and the arguments against it are really not all that valid. 
But second of all, I thought, why would that be so earth-shattering if something like that were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls anyway? Why is this such a threat? If you go to Zechariah in chapter 12, verse 10, it says, and this is the contemporary English version translation again, verse 10, quote, I, the Lord, will make the descendants of David and the people of Jerusalem feel deep sorrow and pray when they see the one they pierced with a spear. They will mourn and weep for him as parents weep over the death of their only child or their firstborn. On that day, the people of Jerusalem will mourn as much as everyone did for Hadad Ramon on the flatlands near Megiddo. Now, that's a pretty clear reference to piercing with the spear and then people later being sorrowful about it. And this is a reference to a descendant of David. Uh, This, I mean... (laughs) I don't know why the why the Dead Sea Scrolls was such a controversy. It's right here in Zechariah. It's right here in the Old which, Testament. Which verse have you got there? Uh, this is verse ten, uh, okay. chapter twelve, verse ten. But I and this is the Jewish Publication Society, right? Obviously, oh, a little oh, different. Yeah, they're not going to like. <laughs> but this. I will fill yeah. the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem with a spirit of pity and compassion, and they shall lament to me about those who are slain, wailing over them as over a favorite son and showing bitter grief as over a firstborn. Yep. See, Nothing about s- that. Slain's a little bit different than pierced with yeah. a, with a spear. Now, um, here we go. In the footnote, in the side margin, yeah. verse 10, an alternative and more common translation, which is at home in Christological interpretation, gosh, Martin, that sounds like your middle name, is represented by, and I will pour out a spirit of compassion and supplication on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that when they look on the one whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Now that's from the New Verse Standard. The Hebrew is ambiguous because it may refer to a person or group whom they have pierced. Although the identity of the pierced one or ones is unclear if the text is read as the continuation of verse 9 as the structure of the section set by the in that day opening suggests. It more likely points to an individual or group from within the nations for an understanding of the verses pointing to the Messiah from the house of Joseph. See uh, the Suko, um, and I'm not even sure what that is. Yeah. And Radak reads differently. For him it describes such a salvation that if even one person of Israel were killed in the battle, they will be astonished. Yeah. So See, this is yeah, this, this, this is, is what we're dealing with here. This is similar to to the virgin young woman controversy. Oh yeah, yeah. And, and to me, that one and this one have always mm-hmm. been a tempest in a teapot because if somebody's slain with the sword, they are. Well, here's here's the revised here's, English Bible. Okay, that that we've got. Very similar to what you've got there. But I will pour a spirit of pity and compassion on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Then they will look on me, on him whom they have pierced, and will lament over him as over an only child, and will grieve for him bitterly as for a firstborn son. Context tells you everything. This is clearly mourning, not for a whole bunch of people who are dead, but for some one who who has died and and the young woman virgin thing is a little bit 
it doesn't work so much in our context today because so many young women aren't virgins and so it's not the same one means the other i mean hopefully in the church they mean the same thing but back then you would not be a young jewish girl a young woman who was not also a a virgin and so they literally mean the same thing and i i also believe that for this passage that this in zechariah they the context shows this to be about an individual not some big group in in a battle yeah and it really you know but like you said even though it's a tempest in a teapot it's an important one because because this is a very specific reference that those of us who believe in christ use from the new testament and so i've got my jewish publication society right here and they admit the more common translation is at home with the Christological interpretation. We're going to do something different. Okay, fine. That's good that they can do that. And when I get my commentaries, if it's a Jewish author, they're going to go with this. If it's a Christian author, they're going to go with that. And that's what I love about Zechariah is he is unafraid. The scripture is what it is. And um, I, you know, in, in, I can hear John's voice in my head right now, John Gee, that is. If we were on the second week, he would be saying, that's why you learned the Hebrew yourself, Terry. <laughs> well, <laughs> but I'm not going to go there. Yeah. Well, here, here's another one. And this is even a King James change. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mark 10, 18 and Matthew 19, 17. They come to Jesus and they say... Good sir, and they're going to ask him a question, and instead of answering the question, he launches off into this, why callest thou me good? And if you read it in the in the King James, it says, none is good save God. But if you go back to this the Deuteronomist, if you go back to the 1611 King James from the context, and if you go back to Tyndale, it says, why callest me good? No man is good save one, and that's God. And that got all revised out because nobody wants to call God a man. And that that is a pretty big nuanced change. You can say, oh, it means exactly the same thing. None's good but God or no man is good but one and that's God. Well, maybe that doesn't mean much of a difference to some people, but it sure does to Latter-day Saints. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was talking about this. Old Testament, New Testament usage. Well, here's here's the passage in John 19 and 37. Uh, the present passage provides the second of two texts said to be fulfilled by the Romans' actions in 9 and 34, namely Zechariah 12 and 10. They will look on the one they have pierced. The text is yes. quoted in Revelations 1 and 7. An earlier text in Zechariah 9 and 9 is quoted in John 12 and 15 with reference to Jesus' kingship. Now, one of the things that we found in there is that something that happened between the destruction of Herod's temple and when the Old Testament appeared, if you will, by Jerome, and even before the destruction of Herod's temple, the manuscripts were being changed by the rabbis. The minute Jesus appeared on the scenes and people started following him and they started quoting certain Old Testament scriptures about him, they stopped using them in their regular worship services. Now, they couldn't do it entirely because 
obviously it was just in Jerusalem and they didn't have modern communication. It wasn't like now you can just, you know, tweet 2,000 miles and somebody can, 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 you know, make the change. So it was still done in many areas, particularly in, in the example that we used and we cited in our book in particular was the Feast of Weeks. There were changes. There's an article by Rachel Elior about that. And it's, I don't know, 30, 40 pages. And it is fascinating about why they made those changes. They made the changes of, in the feast. They made the changes in the readings. They did things specifically because the Feast of Weeks actually is 50 days after the Passover. What happened in the New Testament 50 days after the death and resurrection? Martin, what happened 50 days there? It's called Pentecost. Right, where the Spirit was poured out That's and right. everything. That's right, exactly. Yeah. The minute that happened and they started making those claims, they went to work and changed all of that. And so that's kind of what we have here. So, um, you know, the, the Ze- Zechariah 12, 9 and 10 is part of a second oracle spanning 12, verse 1 through fourteen twenty one, which concludes the book. And it focuses by way of divine speech on Yahweh's action against the nations. Now, 12, 1 and 8 determines external events to occur in Jerusalem in that day, which essentially is the last days. But Yahweh is going to pour out a spirit of grace, like he says in Ezekiel 36, 25, and 26, in supplication, which is connected to people looking on one whom they have pierced. An individual has been killed, a possible instance of a prophetic perfect, and this is followed by a period of profound mourning. In context, the phrase on me can refer only to Yahweh himself. Right. And that's yeah. a future prophecy. It's not yeah. about some contemporary war or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or a contemporary person. And then this goes on to say, it's page 504 of this, of this commentary, which is some really fascinating material about it. But there's... There's so many other things here. I, I love the part about the, uh, the 30 shekels of silver in verse 11. <laughs> then I said to them, if you are satisfied, pay me my wages. If not, don't. So they weighed out my wages, 30 shekels of silver, the noble sum that I was worth in their estimation. The Lord said to me, deposit it in the treasury. And I took the 30 shekels and deposited it in the treasury in the house of the Lord. And I think, if I remember right, that weren't deposited in the treasury in some of the other translations. They were deposited in the potter's field, if I remember. So, you know, once again, we've got the issue of translation here where you don't know, well, okay, you've got one side saying this, you've got another side saying that. Where does it really lie? But the fact remains, you have the 30 shekels of silver being paid for the life of the Lord, of God himself. Because this is the voice of God here. This isn't just you know, some random person or anything else. I mean, he specifically says, I said to them, if you're satisfied, pay me my wages. Chapter 13, verse um, 6 has another similar one that, that is different in modern translations than it is from Jewish ones, and even different in some Modern-day English asked, translation. What are those sores on your back? He will reply from being beaten in the homes of my friends. Yes. And if one of them asks, why are you wounded? He will answer, it happened in the house 
of my friends. That's a pretty big translation difference. So here they say it's presumably for making drunken scenes, okay? (laughs) And and so they they try and explain this as sores being sometimes symptoms of hysteria. But they also say this is possibly a reference to ecstatic prophecy. That's how they kind of describe it is that it was almost self-inflicted because he was just in this – uh, state. See, there, there are two ways you can look at this. Number one is that the Jewish Christians or Christian Jews, however you want to look at first century Christians, those who followed Jesus during his lifetime and then were there when he died and was resurrected, re- resurrected they saw themselves as Jews and Jesus as a reformer of Judaism. And as they read their scriptures, which was entirely at the time the Old Testament, they saw Jesus in them. And that's why you see these New Testament references back to these verses. If it was so crazy and so different, they never would have seen him in them in the first place. Well, and once again, like, like I was reporting, they took it out. They went and intentionally took it out. And people say, oh, it was the, so maybe the Catholic Church took it out. No, no. It was taken out before then because there was this understanding that the Christians were now using it to support Jesus. And that was not going to fly with the power, political powers who were the ones who executed him <laughs> in the first place. Yeah, things change w- yeah. when um, – yeah. Twitter was Twitter was locked up on that time. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. When when Jesus uh, when this whole Jesus thing happened in the first century, two of the most popular names to name your young male child were Jesus and Judas. After this little Christian thing came along, nobody was naming their kids Jesus. And nobody was naming their kid Judas. Well, how many Pontius Pilots do you know these days <laughs> that's, either? That's right. The, Although, the context the, there's some changed. last names. I had a coach who was named Pontius back wow. in the day. That was his last name, not his first. But even so, I mean, I think he was kind of stuck with it. Yeah. The point being that the context changes the desirability of names and words and verses. And after... New Testament Christianity had begun. The Old Testament was dramatically reworked. Until the Dead Sea Scrolls came along, the earliest fairly complete Jewish Old Testament dated to about 1000 A.D. That gives you a lot of time to rework it. Yeah. So at the end of Zechariah, the Lord is basically saying, okay, I'm going to clean everything up. I'm going to take care of Egypt and everything. And then you have these verses on in verse 20 and 21 of chapter 14 the last two on that day holy to the lord will be inscribed on the horses bells and the pots in the house of the lord will be like the sacred bowls before the altar in other words they'll be they'll be filled with cleansing blood which means the savior will have worked his atonement every pot in jerusalem and judah will be holy to the lord of hosts and all who come to sacrifice will use them for boiling the flesh of the sacrifice. When that time comes, no longer will any traitor be seen in the house of the Lord of hosts. In other words, you're not going to have to buy your animals. The sacrifice has been made. Jesus has finished his work and is putting it up to his father. So the question that, the, that they ask us to do 
is say, well, the, how, does, how does this holiness unto the Lord? The Lord makes us holy through his atonement. So then you ask yourself the question, well, how do we do this? How do we make ourselves holy in the name of the Lord through the atonement? And that's really what we should be focusing on. Because, you know, all of these rituals in the temple, all of these things, especially before Jesus came in the time of the Old Testament were done, only the high priest could do it on behalf of the people, as symbolically, of course, with the Savior. And when they changed the nature of his office, which happened after the temple was destroyed, in fact, after the first temple, in many translations, he was no longer referred to as the high priest of the temple. He was referred to as the head priest of the temple. We've got that in the book, too. But I would just say, it you know, it's something that we need to um, remember and figure out. And that's where the Book of Mormon comes in for me, especially, because the Book of Mormon, particularly the teachings of Alma and Amulek, tell us how to exercise that atonement, what it is, what it means, and we really can understand this Law of Moses stuff and this ancient temple stuff in light of that, particularly through uh, Amulek's sermon in Alma chapter 34. A couple of things that um, I wanted to mention really, really quickly before we're done here. Uh, chapter 14 talks about the Battle of Armageddon briefly, and you also— Occasionally hear people say, well, water's going to come out from under the temple. Where's the Old Testament prophecy about that? It's in Zechariah chapter 14 in, in verse 8. So th- there you go for those who are teaching this lesson. We are out of time for this session of Interpreter Radio. Terry, tell people the name of your book. Oh, again, yeah, where once they again, can find The it. Temple please, Pathway please. to Heaven. Yes. Uh, you can look it up under my name or Grant Gifford's name in uh, Amazon paperbacks available now uh kindle hopefully soon cool fabulous show oh, and i'll probably do an audio book for it too fabulous thank thank you terry thank you all for listening join us again for interpreter radio next week terry hutchison and martin tanner signing off